Bonjour, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, my name is Chris Denson, or Chris Denson, as uh, my guest co-host will probably pronounce it. Uh, hello, Manon. How are you doing today? Uh, um, très bien. Oh, are you fluent? Uh, uh, I have been. I'm very rusty. So this is this is weird because I just met you last night. Yes. And I just found out that you you're a French descent. Uh, a Louisiana. Oh, Louisiana. Louisiana. French Cajun. Creole. Yeah, a little Cajun in there. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, well, welcome. Tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I know you have a pretty cool story in a, a nonprofit that takes place inside of a trailer. Yes, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Uh, we, I have a nonprofit that is a media arts education program for kids that are in areas where they don't have as much access to technology or to mentors that can help them guide through the process to tell their stories. So we have, a, it's called the Mobile Film Classroom and it, it is like it sounds. It's an RV that's a production studio on wheels. So we can travel to the schools, libraries, with other organizations. We just need a place to park. Do you get a, lot of, get a lot of police pulling up behind you? A bunch of kids in an RV and... No, no, no. <laughs> we don't drive with the kids in the RV. <laughs> nice, okay. We park, and then the Got kids it. get on. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you for joining us. Um, and then right across from me, hello. Hi. How are you doing today? Good. Good. Um, Rebecca Cantar. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. Good. Fine. All right. Because it's either Cantor. Everybody's names are so... I mean, I say Cantor, but I don't really care. So uh, well, I care. Okay. We, we care here. Okay. That's what Innovation Crush is all about, caring. Um, but I'm, I, like I told you earlier, I'd never do this, but I wanted to make this, um, I wanted to paint a picture here uh, and, and let people know who you are. Um, first of all, you're, the, you're involved in a company called GLG, correct? Correct. Um, and I'm going to get into a little bit of your history, and then we'll move into the future. Um, Rebecca has served as Chief Executive Officer of Minga, a nonprofit organization dedicated to combating the global child sex trade by harnessing the power of teens. Rebecca has spoken at several TEDx events, Startup Iceland, Cisco Live, the Dell Social Innovation a Summit. Oh, sorry, that my um, highlighting went, went berserk. <laughs> the, um, the Dell Social Innovation Summer Institute, the Nexus Global Youth Summit, the United Nations 11th Annual Day of Youth, and for teams at Coca-Cola and Red Bull, Rebecca was also a fellow at the 2013 Nantucket Project and serves on the World Economic Forum's Global Global Council on Humanitarian Response. Rebecca attended Harvard College and now lives in New York City. And she's only 22. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I wanted to read it. Um, how, did, how did this all happen? What, that's, a, that's a long life, long, like a, a 50-year-old person's bio. Um, I think I was just born really early and someone messed up recording the date. No. Um, <laughs> I happened into everything. So in my freshman year in high school, a group of my friends grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, learned about the issue of child sex trafficking through a leadership retreat. And during that time, every organization in the space that was fighting child sex trafficking was very focused on rescue and rehabilitation in Southeast Asia and South America. And a group in the Philippines had approached us about helping to fundraise for a safe home they were building for child survivors just outside of Manila. And we said, of course, we'll help fundraise and came home to our parents after about 30 of us met in a living room and said, let's have a yard sale and raise $5,000. What did you sell? Like crap, I'm just <laughs> just an acre full of crap. And our parents were like, "This is cute. You'll raise six hundred bucks, but you'll clean your room, which we've been trying to get you to do for a year. Right. So please do." 
we raised six thousand five hundred dollars with that first yard sale wow. and kind of grew from there we started to focus on prevention and understanding what people were doing to prevent child sex trafficking in different markets both in the u.s and abroad figured out that no one was really doing anything to prevent child sex trafficking right. in the u.s and saw that as an exciting opportunity to hopefully close what was really a feedback loop issue so what I mean by that is if you look at the economics behind any black market, whether it's drugs or weapons or child sex trafficking, um, you notice that there's very clear reasons why different actors in the criminal industries are acting the way they are. And in the U.S., you had pimps who were basically organizing either through gangs or through organized crime rings abroad who were able to make serious profit off of selling girls. And unlike selling weapons or drugs, a girl was a reusable commodity that could be sold 20 to 30 times a night. So when we looked at the issue in the United States, we said, why is no one wor working on preventing this here? Right. And the answer seemed to be in, in kind of where funding was coming from and how ROI was demonstrated. So when you think about a foundation or a grant that might support a survivor organization, there's a very clear story there, right? If we rescue sure. 80 girls, that's a tremendous use of funding. Um, no one had really shown how we prove prevention in this space. So how do we show that a child, in fact, was not sold because our organization intervened? Or right. that a pimp did not sell a child because our organization intervened, or that a John, a buyer, did not buy sex with a child because of our organization. So I was really interested in how to how to close those feedback loops and how to maybe shift funding in this space from being entirely focused on rescue and rehabilitation to actually being allocated towards prevention, both on the supply and demand sides. So our little group of, of teenagers started giving speeches in schools and I would actually get on stage at high schools everywhere and I would rap to the 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg PIMP music video. You know and you can't say that without <laughs> doing it. No, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> Luckily that lives online for people to discover. Nice! Um, so did that at, at school after school and I was basically testing this idea that maybe if we could intervene with kids when they were 13 to 14, generally in public school settings, um, and I could really capture their interest with a, a cultural touch point that they were very familiar with. About 60% of all kids I spoke to when I asked the question, have you seen this music video by mm -hmm. 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg, would raise their hand. Um, so understanding that they'd already kind of been introduced to this idea of prostitution. Right. And it had been treated in a, a very glorifying and kind of glitzy way when, in fact, the reality of child sex trafficking and prostitution at large is far from glamorous. So so when so that's an interesting dynamic, right? Like you're 14 or 15 at that time yeah. or and you have a very different perspective than your peers. Yeah. Where like where did that come from? Right. Because a lot of us, you know, even at 14, like you hopefully I have a nine year old. So I'm like, hopefully <laughs> you almost don't know what sex is yeah. <laughs> at, that, at that point in time, let alone to know that pimping and what yeah. you know Snoop is talking about and, and 50 Cent are like is a, a global problem. Right. Um, so, you know, where did where did that come from in you as an individual to kind of see the world differently at that point in time? I mean, exactly as you said, I figured out what sex was probably a year before I started talking about anti-child trafficking work. So thinking about this dynamic, really what compelled me was the average age of entry into prostitution in the United States at the time was 13. 
So I didn't understand how we could possibly expect our generation to solve this problem when those at the highest risk, 13 to 15-year-olds really, primarily in urban demographics, had no idea what child sex trafficking was, and the only glimpses into the industry they ever had were through our pop cultural references that made it look really enticing and appealing. And you could imagine as a young woman growing up maybe in a broken home, maybe coming out of the foster care system, someone who hasn't seen unconditional love and hasn't been in a nurturing, supported environment, this idea that you could be in this alternate world where you're absolutely worshipped for your beauty, you're treated like a Mm -hmm. queen by these men who exist to basically serve you, that's definitely the vision that was purported by our pop culture and media, that's a really enticing alternate reality. And of course, when girls actually enter into prostitution or the child sex trade, um, their lives are far from that beautiful picture that 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg have worked hard to paint. And even far more, like any other organized crime industry, you know, full of death and drugs and threats and fear. Stop, you're gonna make me throw away all my hip hop albums. (laughs) <laughs> but no, I mean, that, 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 you know, that's amazing, you know, and I think, you know, when you touch on a, a lot of those topics and just being able to, I don't know, to, to see the world differently at that point in time, um, I look at, uh, you, you, you made a good point. I saw you speak a couple of weeks ago at an event called Hatch. Shout out to Yarrow and the, and the whole Hatch crew. But um, you made a great statement of, you know, young girls need more examples, you know, than just princesses, right? Um, and, you know, just what do you, what advice, what, how do kids approach you? Like, you know, uh, I, I see that you're in a lot of adult circles, but did you ever get a chance to actually go and speak with the girls that you were trying to save? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really focus on rescue and rehab. As I said, we really focused on understanding the economics. I found that there was a massive dearth of data around how this trade, logistics-wise, was actually working. No one knew how many girls were being sold in the U.S. No one knew how old those girls were. No one really knew where they were being transported or how they were being transported. No one had quite understood the... Um, positive and negative externalities that were occurring either by chance or intentionally for state governments, for federal government, for local industry players, for private companies, anyone along that value chain and that kind of logistics chain of delivering girl to buyer um, was a part of the problem. And no one had really captured data on that. So I focused more so on how do we understand those markets and how do we maybe tell a different story using data from sites like Backpage.com or Craigslist? Now, of course, we did a lot of education with children and around prevention, um, and we had anecdotal stories. You know, a girl would come forward and say, my boyfriend, I think, is kind of fits the bill of what you've described of what a pimp might look like before they'd start pimping. He tends to buy me expensive clothes and then tell me that he's short on rent and ask me if I could do a favor by hanging out with this guy friend of his. Um, so we definitely had stories like that where girls would come forward and say, you know, what should I do? Um, by and large, you know, I think I'm a pretty, like, normal, I was a pretty normal teenage girl, now a pretty normal 20-something-year-old in that I have friends, we go out, we listen to music, that definitely has this mixed messaging in it, and it's like, what can you do? That's kind of the pop culture and the society we've grown up in, and I think it's part of the problem. Certainly the economics are more to blame than our pop cultural references, mm-hmm. but um, I think in terms of how it changes my interaction with kids, like, quite honestly, it doesn't really. Um, I think in speech settings, when I'm talking about language and how we've glorified certain aspects of this industry inadvertently, um, that certainly is something that high schoolers are still able to kind of understand and resonate with because they think about other words that have maybe changed meaning and, and how that 
um, language and rhetoric we use around causes or issues might have adverse effects in terms of shaping overall societal opinion, whether it's condoning or condemning different aspects of our economy and different markets. Um, what were you doing when you were 14? I don't know if I can remember that part. <laughs> um, so, you know, fast forward a little bit, right? In, in, how did you go from this industry to where you are now? Because it's, it's disparagingly different. Yes, <laughs> it is. Although, hopefully in my storytelling, it makes a little more sense. So during my years with Minga, we were always attending these entrepreneur and young social entrepreneur events where a Fortune 500 company would spend literally millions of dollars on a one-off occasion where they'd televise this award ceremony. They'd usually have us fire off some tweets, and then they'd never talk to us again. And I was like, well, this is stupid. Your brand is spending so much money to right. create this very superficial tie to the most influential portion of the millennial generation and you have no idea how to capitalize on this group of us for insights into your branding, your marketing, your hiring, your um, strategic brand direction or your foundation funding and its storytelling. And I noticed in about 2009, one company did something a little bit smarter and it was State Farm Insurance. And I didn't have insurance at the time. I wasn't particularly interested in insurance. Um, but State Farm took 30 young social entrepreneurs, many of whom were my friends, and they put them on this youth advisory board. And they said, hey, kids, help us allocate $5 million of our foundation's funding each year. And by the way, do it for free, please. And two years later, in 2011, I was a sophomore at Harvard College, and State Farm had 1,100 applicants for 10 spots on their youth advisory board, wow. and I was rejected. And I was like, how can it be harder to sit on the State Farm Youth Advisory Board than to get into Harvard, particularly after fighting child sex trafficking for like five years? So didn't quite understand what was happening, but had also been researching boards of directors of publicly traded companies because at the time, Mingo was working on some cause marketing partnerships with different brands, and I became really interested in corporate leadership and how these companies actually functioned. And I discovered that most corporate boards suffered from the same ailment, which was a severe overpopulation of very old white men. And I thought about the future of different industries and the demographics that these brands, be it Coca-Cola or Estee Lauder or Condé Nast, whoever, right. um, these brands all had something in common beyond their old board members, which is the demographics they needed to reach if these brands were going to survive and thrive, were primarily in emerging markets and they were primarily young people under 30. And I saw a massive disconnect between kind of the strategic uh, leaders at the helm of these organizations and the populations they were going to need to steer if they were going to really have ships that continued to sail. So thinking in, in that way, I said, what if we could build youth advisory boards for all Fortune 500 companies? What if, just like we have the minor league pump lining talent into the mm -hmm. major leagues in baseball and in other sports, what if we had this kind of board that mirrored the board of directors, let the C-suite get to know these younger people for several years, and then you could draft your minor league player to the major league? Sure. And the idea was, you know, right now, my thesis around these young entrepreneurs was that they didn't have the requisite two to three decades of experience to show a track record to indicate their potential as a board member for one of these companies. So they were a riskier bet than, say, a 65-year-old right. who'd previously been at MTV and then... And, and how, do you, how do you assemble these boards, right? Like, where do you go and find these, you know, groups of sure. youth, you know? So many of them were my friends from nonprofit world. Um, as I said, I actually didn't have to do the hard work because most of these events had already been bringing us together. So these, these young people had already been identified and that's what was very interesting just no one was capitalizing on them so 
I wanted to provide an opportunity also for these young people to create deals with these Fortune 500 companies to potentially facilitate investments, acquisitions. So we started building youth advisory boards in 2012. I raised my first round of venture funding while at Harvard in 2012. Dropped out after my second semester of my sophomore year. Um, I can touch more on that, but I didn't drop out just oh, to Oh, we'll get into company. it. I, yeah. <laughs> People <laughs> we'll are always like, that. you know, you dropped out to build this company. And I'm like, well, kind of. But I dropped out for many reasons and, and kind of went there intending to. But as the time had it, it was the perfect time for me to start Brightco, begin building youth advisory boards. Um, we helped a few Fortune 500 companies and basically realized that even if there was an internal maven who was so hungry to kind of anticipate the storm, which I call the kind of millennial flood that was coming in terms of how millennials interacted with companies internally as employees, but also externally as consumers. That maven usually wasn't powerful enough to bring the whole company into a world's kind of long view, thinking five years or 10 years out into the future of their markets or industries. So what would happen is these people who were kind of visionary enough to bring in these youth advisory board members would still get bogged down by the process and the expectations that were kind of mandating them as slaves in a quarterly system, right? So no matter how brilliant this mind who we got to work with at a Fortune 500 company might be, that person was still answering to, you know, well, how does this change the bottom line in three months, not in three years? And that was a difficult dynamic. So I realized that we had to provide kind of a more on-demand way for executives at Fortune 500 companies to learn and to learn from this population of entrepreneurial thought leaders specifically because they could have a focus group with 10,000 millennials in a room, but the insights that they were going to get from that focus group were not nearly as crystallized or as thought through or as on point as the insights they might get from just a few of these millennial entrepreneurs who'd been selling to tens of thousands of their peers for 10 years. These people had their fingers on the pulse of our generation in a way that most members of the millennial generation just don't have because most of us don't sit around theorizing about the trends and patterns among our peer groups, right? It's a very unusual trait to be able to step outside of your own generation and yeah. understand how to empathize with the different demographics within it. Is, it. is there sort of an exchange that happens, you know, because I would imagine as a young entrepreneur, young thinker walking into a large company, let's call it Levi's or, you know, Pfizer or whatever, um, what are they getting out of that experience, right? Because Absolutely. That, yeah, because I, I would imagine there's a really good exchange there. So it turns out that both sides get pretty much equal value. It's always hard to determine who enjoys the experience more. Um, but I said with our... Whoever's getting the money. <laughs> In theory. Um, but I said with our online network, you know, we ended up putting everyone's profiles online so brands could call up these young entrepreneurs and talk about anything from events at South by Southwest to recruiting female engineering talent in the South to thinking about the future of wearable technology and where it's going to understanding um, millennial trends and core values and how to manifest those throughout a brand and a customer experience, for example. So in those cases, you know, there are specific questions where I think brands got a ton of value from just having someone answer a question that otherwise they'd have to spend, you know, months reading and Googling for. Um, But there are many other instances where we discuss kind of broader, more theoretical trends and ideas around where society, forget millennials, but where society was going. And millennials happen 
to, I think, be positioned to kind of lead the other generation simply because of our size and our tech savviness. And right. both of those things, you know, are not things that we made or can claim any um, brilliance behind, but just that we literally were born into. I mean, there are a lot of us, and we happen to not remember most of us life without Google. So those are two kind of distinct traits that I think manifest the millennials to really be positioned as this leader for the world to watch and follow. Um, and when we had these conversations with brands, it was clear that both sides were learning, which kind of brings me to you know where I am now. Brightco joined GLG in July. We decided it was the right strategic choice for us to be able to bring this amazing community of entrepreneurs. Congratulations and on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, it's a great experience, and we're very lucky to be there now. But we had this amazing opportunity to bring these thought leaders and these entrepreneurs to a community of professionals of about 400,000 experts that GLG has been working with for a decade. So thinking about how those two communities could really provide value through insights, through perspective sharing, through knowledge sharing, really a new executive education model, if you right. will, thinking about all the ways that these two populations that are defining so many trends and opportunities for society might be able to constantly interact and provide a real exchange of information and insight um, among each other. That's what was so compelling for us and what we're focused on now. That's great. I, I read this really interesting statistic, and I, I think it kind of fits with, with what you're doing. Um, from 1973 to 1983, 350 corporations fell out of the fort, Fortune 1000. From 2003 to 2013, 712 corporations fell out of the Fortune 1000. So you're talking about two-thirds of a loss and a, like a giant increase in companies making some sort of mistake and, and falling off. Um, if, if you could summarize like maybe like the single most you know, hurdle that these companies are where they're, where they're making the mistake, yeah. um, what would it be? Uh, I think they're missing the fact that millennials are loyal to ideas more so than a brand, right? So millennials are fickle. They are constantly um, open to being won over by brands, but they're also very quick to move away from a brand that doesn't seem to emanate their core values or share their worldview. And a lot of the brands I would expect that have fallen off this list were brands that did really well with our parents and our grandparents' generations and even did well with millennials as kids. I was having a conversation earlier today about Roxy. The or brand. they make corn pipes and they're <laughs> no longer necessary. But in the majority of cases, I think their products could be relevant, but the, the branding and some of the products that these major corporations are manufacturing and introducing to society are ones that res resonated with millennials and generations past, um, millennials as children, but haven't evolved with our generation as it's grown. So you see these brands that are still marketing um, to kind of the 1990s and the early 2000s and that haven't adapted and said, you know what? Millennials care about a very specific and very predictable, actually, set of things. They care about authenticity. They care about sustainability. They care about community. They care about feeling like there's kind of this broader calling beyond whatever the product is. And in some way, shape, or form, it's changing mm -hmm. society positively, more so than creating negative externalities. Um, they care that the brand kind of resonates with their creative ambitions and with their hope to have a purposeful career and a purposeful life. So. If brands can hit the, kind of the nail on the head with millennials, I think that you'll see old companies that have been around for 
decades, if not centuries, kind of reinventing themselves um, and still remaining relevant. A good example, you know, Coca-Cola has been around for a long time. Its sales are still doing fine. That said, it's been adapting. It acquired um, Vita Coco, Mm -hmm. has Odwalla. It's certainly shown that they're not just focused on the Coca-Cola trademark brand and that instead Coca-Cola can be a lifestyle brand that lets you open happiness in a variety of ways. And for millennials, that's really key. Um, so a brand like that certainly you know, was at risk of being knocked off that list and being labeled as stodgy, but instead has been able to kind of at least keep abreast with innovation that's happening among millennials and the thought leadership that millennials are pulling with food and beverage companies that are kind of fragmenting that industry, companies like Sweetgreen um, mm-hmm. or other you know, niche juice companies, tea companies. You have Runa, you have Honesty, which is acquired by Coca-Cola as well. So that's what I would say is if there's one ailment, it's brands thinking that marketing and building products as usual is going to continue to work because it's not. Right. And if these brands don't proactively kick themselves and say, hey, we better go about reinventing and get our ear to the ground and listen to what amazing startups are getting traction in different markets that we care about and then figure out a way to bring those folks in, um, I think that we're going to see more brands just continue to gradually kind of landslide off and you're going yeah. to see new smaller startups arise to fill all those gaps. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, you talk about a lot of companies wanting to create innovation centers or they want to create like new thinking inside the company. Yeah. But it, like from your perspective, it's more about just con- the way you connect with the consumer. Right. Or I, the way you I connect look, with the generation. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that in order to connect with the generation, most of these companies need innovation to happen. That's mm-hmm. become a meaningless buzzword, but essentially, they have to build. Hey, new my show things. is called. Sorry. <laughs> in Fortune 500 buzzword world, crush. In, in Fortune 500 world, it's become a meaningless buzzword. Where you hear every company building an innovation lab or an accelerator. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they work, sure, but. What really seems to work more is acquisition, and even that's a risky bet, right? Because oftentimes the company that was acquired at a Fortune 500 company ends up dying or failing when the leadership, the initial startup team, is no longer involved in a daily operating basis. But I do think that some of these companies have the raw resources to reinvent themselves and to build more meaningful products. I do think it's about changing products, not just about changing marketing. you know, a company like Burger King has given up on the U.S., and that's probably inaccurate. If they're not going to change their product, that's probably a, a good strategic choice, I would say. But there's no reason that Burger King can't just start selling something else, except for that they're choosing not to, right? right? Or they sold the Black Whopper in Japan. I don't know if you have you guys seen that? the Black Whopper. It's like a, it's all black. It's very yeah. strange, Where? but it looks like it could be delicious. Interesting. I mean, you have Kentucky Fried Chicken could become Kentucky Fresh Chicken and probably do better here, right? So thinking about if these brands are going to wait to be kicked or if they're going to kick themselves is really the question. And if they do decide to innovate, I think the other mistake that a lot of them make is, you know, promoting someone who's been there for 30 years from within to lead the innovation. Like, how is that person possibly going to have external data points to deliver a radically different solution when they've been ingrained and brainwashed I, this company kind of with an internal myopic view for 30 years. Yeah. It's very unlikely that that person's going to come in one day and say, hey guys, we've been doing everything wrong. Let's just start again. What's more likely is if you can get these brands to kind of engage with thought leaders who are very far outside of their typical domain, if they can have more data points from which to inform their execution decisions, maybe we can inspire a gradual kind of seismic shift within where more and more people almost get it. And I know it's a very cliche thing to say, but more people are kind of understanding this is where the world's going. We can either 
you know, embrace it mm-hmm. and join it and maybe win, or we can keep resisting it. And eventually, we're just going to watch our market share fall as more startups that get it are fragmenting our markets and taking consumers. Because again, the next generations, millennials and Gen Z, by the way, are much more loyal to what's the best product, what's the best marketing, which mm-hmm. brand resonates me with me at this time, not which brand am I going to sign up for for the next 30 years, because there's no reason to. There's no mm-hmm. reason to be a purist anymore when you have so many ch- choices. So uh, I want to ask you, like bringing it back from where you started from and taking what you were just talking about in the for-profit brands and the uh, Fortune 500 boards and stuff, back to the social sector with, you know, so many, there's, you know, the nonprofit sector is a huge industry across the country in and of itself. But I think it can suffer from much of what you described that the for-profit does. Um, and so bringing that back, how would you take from your example, your experience, and what you're seeing that the nonprofit world that's trying to solve more of the social issues, and they move very slow and are slow to adapt to technology uh, traditionally, how could they, what are some steps or things you could say for to bring more millennials in, to get more um, the youth voices, more innovative approaches. To make it accessible. To, yeah. To, um, well, yeah. To, you know, you're trying to make an actual change with different issues, whether it's homelessness or youth education or whatnot, but we seem to keep trying some of the same approaches. Very true. Yeah, I, I think the problems plaguing the nonprofit sector are, are slightly different, but also similar in some ways. So I'll start with that. I think there's an overpopulation of nonprofits generally. When someone tells me they've started a new nonprofit, I'm like, oh, great. You know, what does it do? <laughs> That's way. new. Yeah. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that we have that attitude. But the reality is, you know, nine out of 10 nonprofits that I meet are not going about creating a lasting institutional change. And what I mean by that is take an education organization, for example. There are lots of big, sexy ones that people love to fund that build schools and claim to have better curriculums, better operating. Well, great. But why isn't that model of new education being tied into a current pain point for that government? Maybe that's a high crime rate. Maybe that's high infectious disease rates. Maybe that's a high unemployment rate. That money right now from a government is being spent on all of the resulting consequences from people not being educated, right? And if we were instead able to say, hey, this new school model that's popped up in your country, be it Honduras or South Africa, is actually providing your population with the tools to avoid costing you later and all of those ways that you know we just discussed around consequences that might be population and infectious disease based, but that might be more to the individual just having an unproductive life of unemployment and not contributing to gross GDP of the country. There needs to be a nonprofits that are working to close that loop and that say, hey, government, we're going to charge you to manage your school system since apparently your public education system isn't cutting it. And look, you're going to pay it later, and it's going to be much worse for your country in terms of a social fabric and kind of a core ethos. Why don't you pay us now so that we can actually institutionalize our system and gradually the whole country shifts over to this new model of education rather than the current public model, and you can allocate funding as that happens more appropriately. I think most nonprofits shy away from doing that because working with government is like very hard and clunky and unsexy, and it's much nicer to go to have a tech fundraiser in downtown LA or New York, raise 10 million bucks and build a school and put your name on it. And our entire nonprofit system, I mean, it's not just education, I give that example because it's an easy one to understand, but 
there are a lot of programs that could just be institutionalized and I think more impactful and long-lasting if the founders could just remove themselves from needing to have an ego fed by these organizations. And when you think about the hunger industry, which is really what it is, right, we could end hunger, but it's in a lot of people's best interest to continue hunger. Same with child sex trafficking. Like if child sex trafficking wasn't such a compelling economic business for criminals to operate in, and if governments weren't profiting off of it indirectly through taxes for every transaction at a motel, at a hotel, on an airplane, on a train, at a major sporting event, um, then maybe people would, you know, be up in arms and, and fighting for this a little bit more. But it's very hard to, in the nonprofit sector, kind of remove yourself from an organization and say, all right, what is this? What does the world look like when when this works? How do we get rid of ourselves? And that's the question that needs to be asked more. And it's very hard because that's obviously not a sustainable business model. So how do you think about building something that has an earned revenue stream that automatically institutionalizes um, and that basically puts the nonprofit out of work? That should be the goal. Well, is it, is it in in some instances kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? Like if you know uh, most nonprofits. I think emotionally are attached to the immediate result, right? And when you talk about you beginning to work with governments and things that have longer lead times, yeah. sometimes years, that's a, you know, because it's nonprofit, and I use the quotation fingers, um, it, it is hard for them to, to just fund and, and live. And you, you can cough on the microphone, it's okay. <laughs> that wasn't you, surprisingly, uh, Rebecca. Uh, but no, it's just kind of like you look at this, like the long lead time it takes to, you know, to to do what you're talking about and go in at a, at a macro level where it's like, I can go talk to these kids or this, you know, this person right here. And yes, it's a Band-Aid, but it's kind of like there's that the, philosoph- the philosophy of the pay it forward model like oh someone sure. did something good, great for me and now I'm going to do it to the next person yeah it's I mean look in that way it's a perfect segue it's the same um, same problem of you know long term thinking and long term acting as opposed to immediate gratification sure. that you're seeing prevail throughout the venture capital and startup ecosystem there's a constant conflict between you know startups that frankly do stupid things and provide very little value to humanity but are getting massive checks from VCs who think this is going to be the next hot app because it can accrue the most users the fastest. I mean, if we really step back as a society and think about it, it's really hard to argue for why a brilliant young mind coming out of Harvard or Stanford or wherever should be founding another iterative app on helping humans do some you know silly thing like send messages to friends with their pictures or, or hand-drawn like icons over them. I mean, when you think about the potential value add that that student or young graduate could be adding to society if they would just focus on a different problem, all of their time, attention, resources, the networks around them, these kids are graduating with massive social capital and then spending it in very unwise and selfish ways. And not that they're necessarily thinking about that, right? They're thinking about, oh, the number of jobs I can create with my company, the number of users I can touch, the number of daily lives I can change. And it's not all bad. Some of those are very valid reasons and motivations to start a company. But could we optimize a little bit more and position these people instead around solving major problems so that maybe we also don't need to have such a stream of nonprofits working on Band-Aid solutions because maybe we can help bring some of the venture capital money that's out there behind really meaningful solutions and industries that haven't been touched for years, like asphalt. Why do we still use asphalt on the street? Why isn't any entrepreneur working on asphalt? Well, infrastructure isn't exactly a sexy bucket to attract VC investment, right? Or hardware companies. Really hard for hardware companies to get money because very few venture capital firms want to back hardware companies. 
everyone prefers software and B2B platforms more right. so than hardware. Um, food and major logistics industries, really ripe for innovation and disruption. Um, insurance industries, there are literally, you know, hundreds of ways and, and places that these entrepreneurs could be improving society, not through nonprofits, but through businesses. But you have the same challenge. It's this longer term timeline towards exit or towards a really lucrative financial event for those who are betting on them. For nonprofits, it's the same, maybe not in terms of the financial gain, but the right. impacts that you're looking for. And it's just a human psychology problem, right? It's harder to make that end result that's five or 10 years out really tangible and to keep structuring short-term wins for the team that makes sure that eventually they get yeah. to that long-term um, home run. So instead, we see people look for instant gratification. And that's usually what these smaller you know, app-based companies are delivering is an experience that instantly attracts hundreds of people, um, hundreds of millions of people more so, um, delivers a marginal improvement on those users' daily life and says, great, now while the iron's hot, let's sell it. Um, and, and that's what VCs are capitalizing on as well. Right. I don't think it's very different from nonprofits who are saying, let's go rescue 10 kids or let's go build a school in Africa right. and make it a really great event. It's, I mean, that's fine. It's definitely helping some lives. But it's also, if we're honest about it, inherently selfish, right? It's totally an uh, ego-based and kind of um, short-term mentality. It is, and there's a, there's a lot of thinking around that. Maybe you uh, man, experience this with the kids that you work with in film, um, but you know, I think we are just in an instant gratification era. Everything is shorter. You know, We went from Facebook to Twitter, right? You go 140 characters. You get to say what you have to say. You know, um, and then it's like we're in sort of this micro you know, sort of generational period. Um, and even when you talk about millennials, like I've, I've had, you're the second youngest person I've had on the show. But, um, but you know, and I ask the question honestly, like, you know, do, is there, there's a stigma of millennials thinking of them, or not even thinking of themselves, but people looking at them as, you know, the instant gratification era, right? There's a funny YouTube video on like, uh, how to work with millennials and you know somebody shows up and they drop off a, a message on your desk and the guy's just standing there and the guy's like thank you thank you he just wanted to be thanked like he's like I just did this amazing thing see and I should be rewarded right now um, it, so it's interesting when you look at the psycho like the generational psychology right of, of yeah. the world <laughs> and we're all just it, it's everything short term focus and it is look at me um, you know is there is there a way to bridge the gap between that mass groupthink and and you know create more longer term ecosystems. Yeah, I th look, I think that millennials are only the way they are because of the environment that they grew up in, right? So I mentioned this, you know, when you and I met at Hatch, but um, we've grown up in a failed political system in a time of economic recession with the highest unemployment rates for college graduates that we've seen, and even those who are employed. 40% of them are in jobs that didn't require their college education. So I think when we, you know, shit on millennials, the, we have to look more honestly at why are millennials acting the way they're That's acting. Great. And I remember my soccer team probably in, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade, but played in the Massachusetts. Oh, no, you did a kid thing. Good. Yeah, I like yeah. it. You played, played soccer. soccer. <laughs> played lots of soccer. Did you eat soccer. candy? Did you eat candy too? I don't like candy. Oh. I played soccer. Wait, did you always not like candy though? Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Back to back to Rebecca. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry to disappoint on the candy run. But my soccer team lost every game in our state tournament and scored on ourselves twice during the state tournament. And we still won a trophy. And the trophy was for sportsmanship. And I was like, our sportsmanship wasn't even good. Right. And we were upset the whole time. So, you know, when you have millennials seeing instant gratification all the way through K through 12, both outside of school and our sporting events, which there's huge hype around. And obviously you have kids getting recruited as juniors to top schools to go play right. sports there. I mean, all they're getting the whole time K through 12 now is feedback for everything they do good and everything they do bad. And what we've structured throughout our education system is an incentive system that rewards monolithic, monotonous behaviors. And we kind of exercise the same type of thinking of can you memorize information? Can you provide a base level of analysis that's usually teacher steered? And then can you demonstrate that either through exams or essays or the very occasional project? And I think we are actually killing creativity and creative confidence in our students in all schools, whether they're um, public or private, so long as they're traditional, not these alternative schools that I'll talk to that are just starting to pop up now. But in these traditional schools, you're doing the same um, kind of forced thought process to these kids for 16 years, and then you're delivering them into an economy after college that's mandating that they have very different skill sets and that's asking them to have a flexibility of thought, a resourcefulness, a creative spirit that none of them have been practicing. Right. Because instead, what we've done in the classroom environment is mitigate every possible unknown variable and say, this is a safe space. If you study, if you listen, if you take notes, you will succeed. So when you think about short-term gratification, an A on an exam that I studied for that week and performed on, you know, that Friday, that's a Monday through Friday, like, mastery timeline. Right. And, and forgot probably by Tuesday. Right. <laughs> Nothing in, in life works like that, right? When else are we presented with a situation where we're, someone says to us, here are all the resources you need. Here's exactly what the task is. Here's exactly how you can deliver it to me. I'm going to make sure that nothing else possibly interferes. And by the way, you have five days to get it done. And when you get it done, you're going to get a big shiny A and everyone's going to reward you and be proud of you. I mean, nothing, at least in my life, really works like that, right? There's always unknowns. There are always um, unpredictable events that you're constantly juggling. And that's where creative thinking and resourcefulness comes in. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what we've milked out of our education system pretty much after kindergarten. Kindergarten, first grade, you still have a lot of group projects because we as a society agree that those early years are very formative for teaching skills like sharing, like communicating, um, like basic human behavior of how to treat each other. But after those first two years in our school systems where we're very focused on empathy and creativity and communicating, we become very individualistic and we become very focused on helping the individual master content and demonstrate that mastery. Mm -hmm. And that's just irrelevant to our economy now because millennials have grown up knowing that there's nothing they can't know in a matter of seconds, literally, with Google. And I made this point earlier, you know, most millennials don't remember life without Google, Mm -hmm. many of them anyway. Um, And that has shaped their worldview, I believe, in, in a profoundly different way because suddenly every challenge is not about what information we have, It's about learning how to use it. And when you think about what I'm doing at GLG now, hopefully this kind of comes full circle, 
GLG provides this community of professionals who are helping executives, now startup founders, and through our social impact fellowship, um, nonprofit leaders make decisions with more and better data points. So as you're thinking through how to structure the strategic future or path of your organization or your Fortune 500 company or your startup, whatever it might be, you're facing these challenges that really the quality of the information um, and your flexibility of thought and how to use that information, which can often be guided by institutional wisdom or perspective from very seasoned industry yep. experts, that's what determines this, the probability of success of whatever your venture is. So when we think about learning in our grandparents' generation or our parents' generation, it was very much a one-time thing. You went to college, maybe you went to graduate school, and then you leveraged your knowledge throughout the rest of your life. Millennials say, why would we only learn once? Why isn't learning an iterative and evolving process? And when I think about learning as a founder, it's crazy to me that I would use the same three to five experts throughout who become usually advisors right. to these companies, you know, in their very early days. It's crazy to think that I'd use those same people throughout the next 10 years of my company slash life. Those people are always going to be dear friends. They're always going to be valued advisors, but they're not always going to have had the exact same hand of cards that I've been dealt in each situation. So if you think about you know, power in numbers and just the more data points I have and the more context I have on each of those potential helpers around my decision making, if I can understand that context just enough to be able to better optimize who I ask what, sure. maybe I can deliver much better decisions for my business or my nonprofit or whatever it might be. So what I'm striving to build now is you know, a, a new model for having a dynamic, living, breathing advisory base that's able to constantly be that phone-a-friend hotline for nonprofits, for-profits, whoever, these visionary leaders who are trying to grow their companies or ventures and who are thinking about instead of using the same textbook that I started using in first grade all the way through eighth grade, maybe I need something that's growing with me. And maybe the lifestyle and, and evolution of my company demands that I better optimize when I'm bringing which people into my decision-making processes. Um, so hopefully that answers you know a little bit towards my thoughts around yeah. kind of education in this generation and why millennials have grown up being so kind of merit-based and so instant gratification focused. I think it's really a, entirely a product of the system, mainly the education system that they've grown up in. I was just going to say um, my basketball team, I scored the the only goal, only game we won <laughs> in junior high. I, I was right there scoring for the other team. Oh, you scored for the other team. Yeah, something oh. like that. Yeah, that's, Way to that's, go. We didn't get, it. We didn't get any <laughs> award. For that, no, lo like losing, you, losing used to be losing. Like you know, and there's a intrinsic value in f feeling the difference between a win and a loss, like a true win and a true loss. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, no. I wanted to ask you though, um, going back when you're talking about education and not having the creativity in there, I think of all the kids I work with, and most of the time I'm working with kids whether they're in the foster care system or kids that are actually in probation camps. Um, or just kids that are in uh, neighborhoods like East L.A., South L.A., that uh, are in some good charter schools. They're really motivated. But, you know, they may be the first one in their generation to go on to higher education and just don't have as much support on there. I find them very creative and um, really wanting to uh, find different ways to express themselves and have some agency. Um, 
we have always have them within the parameters of the project, they choose their topic. Um, and a lot of times, especially if they're in high school age, it's looking at issues like sex trafficking or why are there no uh, fresh fruit or grocery stores within a certain radius? Why is there no movie cinema in this neighborhood? You know, right. those kind of issues. Or no um, Kentucky fresh chicken. Uh, there's a lot of Kentucky, fr- <laughs> yeah, no Kentucky fresh chicken. Yeah, but uh, I like that idea. By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it. Just so you know. Okay. I'm just letting you know. So for legal purposes, it's, it's been recorded. Yours. Thanks. Yeah, so on that, with these kids, you know, that some kid that has a passion about an issue, taking your experience, what are some words of advice or things that you would say to them to, or, or to people like me working with them to help encourage them to take it to that next level and say that, you know what, you can, just because you're 16 does not mean you cannot make a difference. Yeah, I think there are a number of organizations that support like early um, projects. I I would definitely frame things as projects. I don't think that most kids, certainly not um, populations coming from underserved areas, and I I don't mean that because they don't have the resources, but simply because a lot of times, my understanding anyway with most of the kids I've interacted with is they are behind on some very basic skills that I do think are very important, reading, writing, communicating. Now, some of the best ways to hone those skills are through community projects. And exactly as you've said, having these students identify some of the projects that plague their community kind of most immediately, so not the huge world issues, but can we focus on why no one goes to our farmer's market in East L.A.? Is there one? What? How would we change that to be a community-centric experience that people would actually use it? Having them have agency over something that's local and relevant and immediately tangible is the best way, I think, to motivate. Um, making sure that they have you know reasonable resources to start acting on whatever they're planning um, and also bringing in people to inspire them throughout the process, right? So if you're doing something that's design thinking oriented, like bring in some local product designer from LA to help them understand human-centric design approaches. I think that's where education has to go, honestly, especially in for the masses in urban areas. Um, we have to move away from this test-based regurgitation-based curriculum towards mm-hmm. what I call an application-based or a project-based learning curriculum. Other people call it experiential learning, but I'm like, all learning is experiential. It just might be a sucky experience, right? So can we move towards application-based or project-based learning? And with that in mind, can we make it hyper-relevant to each community? Now, there are some challenges with institutionalizing this, right? Because as you're probably discovering, one, it's hard to fund sometimes, and sometimes it's very complex to manage 100 different projects going on at an elementary school. I mean, you're shuttling kids everywhere. They all have different ideas. They need different resources. They're solving different problems. In some cases, they're just being more annoying than helpful to whatever the local organization already working on it is. So structuring these application-based learning opportunities is definitely a challenge. And measuring the skills and the progress these students are making through application-based learning programs is even more challenging. How do you standardize evaluation of leadership skills in a team? How do you standardize evaluation of persuasive speaking skills? I mean, these are things that are entirely subjective. So the challenge, I think, for us for the next 10 years, if we're going to move away from, say, an all roads lead to AP exams, which in turn gain admission to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and every other school below those schools, um, we have to change kind of the end of the pipeline. Those AP exams right now are a very powerful gatekeeper for these students, and not just the urban underserved population, but all students. If you think about 
these boutique charter schools that are popping up, which it sounds like some of your students are lucky enough to attend. Those schools, I think in many cases, have embraced project-based learning. They're developing minds in a better way than many of our public schools. But those students aren't really gaining admission typically to the top, top elite universities because they don't have AP exams to basically demonstrate to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale that they have the academic prowess to succeed in that environment. And that's still how the elite universities are judging and gauging potential for success in their Ivy walls. So when we think about how we institutionalize and spread these alternative project-based or application-based learning models, we have to think about how we create a new metric system and a new testing system because that's the only thing that's going to standardize this and offer these top universities the potential to start picking talent from these different schools. Otherwise, you're still going to have what I call kind of the Harvard-Westlake in L.A. or in New York, the Horace Mann trend, where the top parents say, my kid is going to that school because the most kids from that school get into Harvard, et cetera. And that's because those schools have, you know, 32 AP exams (laughs) from which to choose when you're a senior. And the alternative schools, while they might be providing arguably a better education that really... Uh, prepares our students for this economy more so than for a university, those students are being written off and those schools are being written off by the parents of highest potential students because they're saying, you know what, if I send my kid there, even though they might really enjoy the curriculum there more and they might grow more as a thinker, they're not going to end up in that upper echelon of school at the end. So we have to create a new story that ends with you know, a different pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and maybe that lives at Harvard, maybe it lives at Stanford, wherever, Um, where these students who are being educated along an alternative path are able to be deposited at the end of the system so that we can create a new feedback loop that validates these alternative schools as not just sufficient but actually optimal and that says, hey, parents of highest potential kids, you know, diverge from the traditional schools that you've been sending kids to for decades that are these elite prep schools and instead embrace a curriculum that's going to better serve their brains. Um, So, sorry, got a little off from your original question, but I think supporting this project-based learning is the best thing we can do to develop students for our economy. It's just still at odds with developing students for admission to elite colleges. Mm. And in every community, whether it's the Bronx or East L.A. or where I'm from in Newton, Massachusetts, the end success story that society looks up to most and that we give the most attention to in the news is the kid who gets into Harvard. Whatever way, shape, or form, it's still (laughs) the kid who gets into Harvard. And Harvard has a 375-year head start on branding. And it's the most powerful brand in the world, $33-plus billion endowment. My year, 36,000 applicants for 1,500 spots at the college. I mean, it is a small, exclusive, and powerful nation. And when that's driving how the rest of our education system is structured, it's very hard to isolate just one piece and say, okay, the problem is pre-K or the problem is K through 12, or to just invent, reinvent one of those pieces in isolation because they all have to come together to create a more compelling narrative than the kid who takes the AP courses at whatever school and gets into Harvard and then has a wonderful um, advantage entering the job economy because of that Harvard stamp. Now, this is not to say that you know unemployment isn't hitting Harvard graduates, too. It is. And even if these students are employed, which most of my peers are, um, they've defaulted into jobs that recruited on campus because they haven't discovered themselves as passionate, creative, ambitious thinkers. They don't feel prepared to juggle unpredictable variables that come with, say, starting a company or with taking a less conventional path. And here's why I, here's why I want to uh, touch on there, because, you know, 
A, a lot of it, yes, is you know, in some ways, a flawed system, and it works in some areas and works in in, in others it doesn't. Um, but then, where do the parents come in, right? Be- because, yeah. I, like I said, I have a nine year old, and I feel like so, I feel like my job a lot of times is to do whatever the school isn't doing, right? I'm I'm going to try to fill in those gaps. So yeah. when you talk about ju- juggling life issues, she's having drama with her three little friends at school. It's like we're going to talk about that and like you're going to always encounter that throughout your life you're going to have people that you connect with disconnect with you have issues with um, you're going to have to make choices like all these sorts of life skills that need to to happen um, because yes there's a there's a utopian near and distant future where the education system is 100% working for let's say a large majority of people but then in the meantime you know parents have to do something um, and so, I, you know, if you could kind of riff on that a little bit, just where the, the parental role is and sort of nurturing the, the best case scenario person of the future. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I think it's also depends on your kid, right? Some kids, when I looked at about 400 members of Brightco's talent pool and experts, um, I noticed a couple trends. One was that most of these entrepreneurs had their first entrepreneurial experience between the ages of eight and 12. So I would say to that end, if you have an entrepreneurial kid, you probably start to know between 8 and 12. And that could manifest in selling T-shirts, a lemonade stand, starting a web design business. I mean, we've seen the gamut, but there's usually a natural personality that speaks to wanting to build something, wanting to sell something often, and feeling the need to gain validation through mobilizing people and resources. That's inherently kind of built in there, I think, and certain life experiences definitely encourage it versus discourage it. But your kid probably, if if they're built to be an entrepreneur, will start to show those um, certain inclinations and skill sets between 8 and 12. The next trend we realize is that those kids who try that really enjoy kind of proving people around them who doubt them wrong and so they start to take slightly bigger bets as they get older maybe they go from a lemonade stand to building a small juice company maybe they then go from juice to finding a new fruit and importing it from a different country and seeing if they can get it on shelves in whole foods these are similar to real examples um thinking about that progression what's happening during that time is the child is actually kind of separating in a psychological way from the parent a little bit early. So usually this psychology shift happens during college where the child becomes more self-validating and determines kind of what their metrics for success and what a successful life to them looks like. And then they constantly judge based on you know their social status at their school, their grades at a school. Mm-hmm. We give them some tools baked into society to kind of judge how they're doing um, against their own you know yep. vision of success. And all of those things are pulling them into more individual agency and away from their parental guidance a bit. Um, our entrepreneurs seem to do that shift a little bit earlier, generally during high school, when they test kind of bigger ideas or they try pulling off bigger projects. And their parents say, you know, I really don't think this is going to work. This is, you know, one of your weirdest ideas yet. And the kid says, you were wrong the last three times. So let me just try it. And right. if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And I build something else. Which is also kind of, it's, that's part of your story, too. Like, as, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. Like, you know. As, I mean, we came up with, you know, crazy <laughs> stories for literally four of us went on a road trip when we were 16. We drove 4,000 miles in four weeks speaking to kids in public schools and in summer camps all over the U.S. and Canada because we wanted to see if, if speaking to teenagers and trying to do kind of this prevention curriculum that we designed was at all 
plausible. And our parents, every one of them, said, there's no way you guys are going on a road trip. And we got a minivan donated, we painted it, and we left four weeks later. Um, that's how only one of us could drive, but our friend Ben got all of his driving hours done on Shout our Shout out to Ben. What's he doing now? Ben uh, is at Brown still. He's been building companies and organizations, and definitely shout out to Ben. That whole group um, of, you know, original Mingaites um, went on to do things that, that they... I prefer Mingalings. Sure, that's fine too. Mingalings, how about that? Um, they, they all have gone on to kind of continue to manifest that entrepreneurial spirit that they first exhibited really starting when we were 14 with that yard sale. In my case, I'd had other projects that were warning signs to my parents probably <laughs> earlier on. Um, I discovered that we lived in Newton, which is like, you know, 60% Jewish and that during bar and bat mitzvah season, people really needed gifts. And I would like custom make mirrors or photo frames and sell them for like 10 X what it costs to make them. I mean, right. it was just silly, but most of these students, it was their first time doing something entrepreneurial and it kept working. We kept producing bigger events. We kept going on these trips. I mean, by my freshman year in college at Harvard, I was giving a speech in Abu Dhabi. I mean, flown there to talk about child sex trafficking. Like that is an extraordinary experience for a young person. And the life skills, the maturity, the social grace, the empathy that comes from interacting in environments where there's constantly unknowns and there are constantly adults, honestly, around you, who you feel you need to meet meet and operate at their level. I mean, that is the best education we can provide for students in terms of how to exist in the world and how to adapt with totally. the world and how to invent the future. So as a parent, I think, you know, figure out what kind of kid you have. If you have one of these kids who you think has this entrepreneurial inkling and potential, then nurture that, but don't, you know, acquiesce to every whim and will because part of what these people need is to learn how to butt heads and continue on. I say no all the time. Yeah, there you go. No! But don't say no for a reason. <laughs> no, I'm and kidding. I no, say, I, I, you know, yeah. what I offered at Hatch when we were talking about this theme was, you know, make your kids argue and present a logical base of reasoning for why they want to do something different. Yep. If it's they don't want to go to summer camp or they don't want to have a summer job because they want to go on this other experience, fine. But, like, help you understand why you should buy into that idea yeah. from them and, and force them to sell you the way they'd be selling a product in the market because the best thing you can do for these entrepreneurial kids is help them prepare for when they're out there pitching an idea to the big bad world you know they're going to get shot down left and right or just pitching themselves right like that's yeah. what that's what an interview is right like it's Absolutely. it's a pitch it's a pitch <laughs> everything's a pitch yeah. everything's a sale so thinking about you know how to nurture that um, attitude and, and help them when they present something decent you know support it yep. um, and congratulate them on winning you over with that theory or that argument but, you no know, sportsmanship. Trophies. Yeah, maybe stop those. <laughs> so the um, the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, as we wind down, because I could talk to you forever. Like I've been like, <laughs> oh, I got I got two other pages of questions. Um, Sorry. It's, no, no, this is great. This is perfect. Uh, don't ever apologize, especially to me. No, the show is called Innovation Crush, and so obviously there's things that we crush on that are in, in the world, and there are people who are crushing it, right? Um, is there someone or something that you see out in the world that is like super impressive to you right now? That, that you look out and you go. Oh, and it doesn't have to be in your world. It can be, you know, in the food arena or wherever. Yeah, there are a couple things. Um, it's funny you say food because I actually really admire a few companies. Um, give a shout out to two of them right now. Hampton Creek Foods and Modern Meadow. Um, Modern Meadow is growing meat and leather from animal cells. And they're based in New York. They're just a fantastic company taking on a really important challenge for humanity. And 
something that was a previously unsexy industry. I think food science and food tech is having a resurgence now, and that's really thanks to a couple of VCs who have gotten behind these visionary founders who say, look, the majority of our global warming problems, the majority of our economic problems, social problems, a lot of things are stemming from food. And if we could just change how we eat, or if people are unwilling to make those lifestyle changes, if we can kind of force them to just know, unknowingly right. slip in a different solution to how they eat, it's kind of like putting your you know vegetables in your fruit juice, maybe we can build a better hamburger and in turn build a better world. I would love a better um, hamburger. There you go. <laughs> I'm vegan, so for me, um, not as much. But So you're, you know, only, you're only I, impressed from afar. You, have, would, you haven't tested their wares. I, would, I have not, but I would <laughs> consider eating grown meat, right? Because it basically takes away all the problems. Um, Maria, would you eat meat that was grown? Oh, yeah. <laughs> would it really? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It's going to be a consumer meat education plants. shift. But like that's, a literal, like a meat tree. Yeah. They can grow them in any shape. Anyway, that's why um, <laughs> Hampton Creek is is replacing the function of eggs in different products with plant-based proteins. Also an incredible feat when you think about how an egg has so many different properties that manifest in different foods that it's right. used in. Um, if you could take away some of that chicken farming and egg farming, you reduce a lot of negative externalities and instead leverage plants, which are entirely clean to grow and renewable. Um, so in the food arena, really impressed with those companies and the general trend of entrepreneurs wanting to take on food tech and food science because yeah. it's really important. It's hard. They're very difficult businesses to build. They involve a lot of regulatory um, questions and and that's a place where, you know, fortunately with GLG I've been able to focus is helping to find these companies that could really, you know, again, leverage these industry experts so that right. they can do better the first time around with these very difficult food companies instead of having to answer you know questions later when they've made mistakes and growing the initial paths of their business so um, that's one bucket I'm very impressed in um, in terms of individuals and kind of trends or thought leaders I think that both Peter Thiel and Elon Musk are probably the entrepreneurs I admire most not so much for what they've built though what they've built is tremendous but more for how purely ends oriented they are. And what I mean by that is I think there are kind of two buckets of entrepreneurs to the best of my analysis of the ecosystem. There are entrepreneurs who really enjoy the process. They sure. love building a business. They love making money. They love having a great team. They draw energy from their team. They look with pride at the culture they've built in their company. They look at the communities that they've impacted by basing their companies in different places. Um, and they do care about the products. They care about the consumer experience. What makes their day is seeing a customer use their product or seeing an employee have a great success story at work. Those are the process entrepreneurs, and they're great. There are a lot of them. And then you have the ends entrepreneurs who are kind of a different breed. And when I think about designing a new education system, um, I'm very focused on these people because these ends entrepreneurs say some problem is so horrendous in society that I just cannot exist with it anymore. Right. I have to change it. And these people will literally do anything to not have that inconvenience exist in their life anymore. And it could be anything from a new form of electricity to a new like social network of connectivity that they believe is just going to make or break society. Sure. They are dead focused on whatever that thing is existing. And they don't really care if you build it or if I build it or if they build it. They just care that it exists. The problem is those are often really challenging um, ventures to build because they're taking on pretty, pretty big problems traditionally and those people say you know if you're not going to try it if no one else is going to try it I'm going to go ahead and give it my best shot because right. it has to happen it's not a question like the world they live in this thing has to change and if you look at Elon if you look at Peter Thiel you kind of see you know Peter talks about um, like horizontal versus vertical innovation 
And he's saying, you know, instead of building another app that does the same thing as 10 other apps, only slightly better, like, can we build a new form of payment? Or can we build a new form of user experience with internet or with PCs? Um, Elon, similarly, obviously is famous now for releasing his IP and saying, have at it. You know, if you want to take on building an underground railway that, you know, functions as his Hyperloop does at 10x the speed of any conventional transport, like, please do. Right? And it's that openness of thinking and and almost the open source movement with open source coding has kind of spurred this for years. But that idea of, you know, here's the IP, everyone, please join in and building it because the vision is so grandiose and it's so unbelievably progressive to society that it just has to happen. Well, also, and it serves, I think those kind of moves also serve as points of inspiration, right? Like, in, you know, maybe somebody's not going to build a Hyperloop based on, you know, Elon Musk releasing his IP, but it's like, oh my gosh, like now I'm, now I begin to think differently. I used to be part of the uh, American Film Institute's Digital Content Lab. And as a nonprofit organization or in the conservatory, we would workshop these projects with volunteer mentors, like some of the smartest people in the world, for three to six months at a time. And then once you, you probably know, man, during um, AFI Fest, we would do our own thing called AFI DigiFest. And we would showcase these 10 projects, get them up to 25 to 75% functional, and be like, have at it. You know, yeah. it, it, this is now in the public domain. Right. So, it, and you'd be surprised at the things that it, maybe nobody went and built the exact thing, but they built something similar or something right. inspired by, right. or, you know, but they probably wouldn't have been thinking that way until they walked right. in the room. I think those entrepreneurs who are ends oriented and who are willing to take that first risk in a new industry or in a new space, I mean, really, we need to to applaud those entrepreneurs above everyone else because they're breaking the ground for venture capital to migrate there, for consumers to develop expectations in a whole new set of um, demand around different markets. And those companies are not just groundbreaking for whatever their venture is, but are really building new markets. And that's very powerful. And, And we have to focus with our education system, with all the resources we have to offer on those executives who have that vision and who are really set on building a world in which this new system exists or functions better. Brilliant. We, um, we're running out of time, but I have to ask you this question. Yeah. Um, and kind of in my notes, I was like, uh, you know, you're big on nurturing talent. Like, I think that's sort of just the theme of, yeah. well, you know, of where you find your purpose and you're like, sure. oomph. I use oomph in a, in a sentence. I've never done that before. Um, but no, and you know, and and then you have this vision for how to better nurture that talent, whether it's in the entrepreneurial ecosystem and corporations, or if it's you know the five year old to twelve year old mm. kid. Um, what does the world look like a hundred years from now if we adopt the Cantor method? <laughs> um, Which I just gave you that one, by the way, the Cantor method this year. Look, I think the world looks more like Elon Musk all over the place. I think that right now, if you imagine the opportunity cost in us missing one Elon type a year even, right? If we miss one of those entrepreneurs because we've shot them down one too many times or we've drained the creativity out of them at a top university or at a top high school, I mean, that is a massive opportunity cost to humanity because that brain and that social capital generally that comes with the brain having been ingrained in a network like in in, uh, Elon's case, Penn or at Harvard or at wherever, I mean, that is a huge cost to us. And we need to make sure that we don't lose a single one of those kids. And I believe if we build a system that captures those people, encourages them, nurtures them exactly as you said, 
you know, we can have instead of, as Teal said, instead of having 140 characters, maybe we'll get flying cars. I don't right. know that we need flying cars, but maybe we get to a place where we have these unafraid thinkers who are saying, you know, let's try it. And if, you know, I'm, I don't care about having ownership over it. I just care that it exists. I think the world in 100 years could be in two places. Either we've embraced those talented entrepreneurs as really the people who we need to focus on in society. And as I mentioned at Hatch, you know, I call this theory kind of the case for the elites, not elite in terms of socioeconomic status, but elite in terms of they've been pipelined on this elite pathway and they show the psychological traits as a high potential entrepreneur. If we focus on that really small percentage, it seems totally counterintuitive. I do believe that we're going to see a trickle down throughout our education system and in turn um, a just elevation of the quality of life in America as more people are able to plug into these entrepreneurial teams and these inventions of the future. If we don't do that, especially if our Fortune 500 companies don't embrace these shifts, I think we're going to see America slip as a superpower. And I think about, you know, if I'm ever going to have kids, I don't know that my kids would have a better quality of life than the one I've had or am having now, right? Because I think that the rise of talent in India and in China specifically, but all over the world, um, is really going to give America a run for our money. And you're going to still have a large percentage of those populations for the next 20 to 50 years that migrate here to come to top universities in the U.S. But it's only a matter of time before their universities have as much cachet, as much social and political and economic capital. And they don't really need our education system anymore. Um, And they don't need necessarily trade with the U.S. anymore. I mean, this is a ways out, but you asked 100 years. I think there's a version of 100 years where America is not a superpower, where it's not a great place to live, where it's really hot and we have really strange temperature zones here in L.A. Mad Max. And everywhere else. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think that there's a 100-year future that's really dismal and that I wouldn't necessarily want to live in. But there's another one if we can find these brilliant minds and nurture them that you know maybe is a whole lot better and much further than we ever thought humanity would progress. Uh, Manon, do you have any final words of wisdom, or um, you look you look like you're freezing? No, no, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not freezing. Uh, you know, I think when I look at this program and the kid, working with the kids that I work with, and just my own sense of where we are as a country, it, it's our, it's that you all have to make our own jobs. We have to create what we're going to do, the whole model of that, you know, when we got a school, you get into a corporate thing. I never followed, but that's not going to happen. That's, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so that creative thought that you're going in, that, that attitude, I have it from the, doing the nonprofit, that sure. entrepreneurial, you know, if someone's going to get the job done, it's, it's going to have to be each of us doing it and coming up with ideas and ways to carry through. And we do need to support our kids and train them on how to do that Man, and get out there. Um, yeah. this, this, this happens with everybody, so don't be nervous. Um, the, I want you to finish a phrase for me. Innovation to me is? Uh, the introduction of original ideas and strategies to advance humanity. I like you. You wrote that one earlier, didn't? Or did you freestyle that? And that was okay. Back to your rap days. You just rap you. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you or merci, I should say, uh, en français. Uh, I took French for like seven years and don't remember a lick of it except for those words I just said. I took Chinese for eight and still can't speak any. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. 
can, well, I wouldn't say you could order food, but you you probably don't. I could probably do that still, but okay. no, I don't really eat Chinese food because it tends to not be I vegan. I'm going to follow you around and see what you do all day. That's just what I want to know. Uh, but anyway, anyway, thank you both for joining us. Um, this has been great, everyone. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we'll talk to you next time. like listening to comedy try watching it on the internet the folks behind the sideshow network have launched a new youtube channel called wait for it it's got interviews with comedians like reggie watts todd glass liza schleichinger slicing driving friends with her for 10 years one of the funniest people out there and i still have a hard time with the last name liza our very own owen benjamin that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more you don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.